Hello there, welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm Andrew Musgrove. I'm joined by John Gibson. This is going to be the first episode of what I'm going to call Gibbo's Corner. Gibbo, you've had a yep. career which has spanned many decades, so you've got many stories about Newcastle United legends. And we're going to start with the one who set the bar, I'm going to say, in Jackie Milburn. Absolutely. Um, one of the best ever centre forwards this company's ever seen, let alone St. James Park has ever seen. Uh, great player, great man. You worked with him after his career finished. Um, how would you sum Jackie Milburn up in a sentence, first of all? It's wonderful to be doing him, by the way, because he was my hero as a kid. When I was a kid, and you never do better than your original hero, do you? When you're a kid, all starry-eyed, and you love somebody, and he will remain there. Um, most unbelievable, as in a sentence, Jackie Milburn, dynamic, quick, entertaining, modest. I think they would be the words to sum up Jackie Milburn. Um, he was very much unique, I felt, because most top, top footballers or top sportsmen I have met in my life have an arrogance about them. And I mean that nicely. I don't mean a, a nasty arrogance. I mean, they know they're good and they're bound to know you're good. Uh, and therefore, they have a swagger. Supermac had a swagger. He had an arrogance about him. He carried himself well. Uh, to a certain extent, that was Alan Shearer. Jackie Milburn was the exact opposite. He was so modest, it was untrue. He was embarrassed by um, his fame, which was incredible to to understand because he, he was an absolute, absolutely adored. He had quite right. He set the bar for everybody that come along. As a schoolboy, I went to St James's Park and stood behind the goal at the Leeser's end and watched the great Newcastle side of Jackie Melbourne, Bobby Mitchell, etc. They won the cup three times in five years at the beginning of the um, of the fifties. And the thing about Jackie Melbourne was he was so quick. A lot of players are quick these days. A lot weren't quick in his days. Um, he had blistering pace um, and unerring finish, um, natural goal scorer um, and played at a time where Newcastle strutted the country as the, the best side, the Cups. They set the, their standards that they wanted to win the FA Cup. They weren't going to be bored and try to win the league and win it some obscure Saturday or Wednesday night in April. They wanted to, to go to Wembley and perform on the big stage, and they did it with um, with Jackie Milburn. And the 51 side, Milburn won in when he scored both the goals against Blackpool. It was supposed to be the Matthews final. Uh, Matthews had won everything bar an FA Cup winner's medal. He was supposed to win it that year. He didn't. He won it a couple of years later, but he didn't win it against Newcastle. And Milburn was the real reason who scored two contrasting goals. One running from virtually the halfway line, beating an offside trap and slotting it in the far corner. And the other one, a quick back heel that was played to him and he whacked it in the... Um, in the top of the net, they wonder, wonder goals. He reckoned if the three sides, uh, if the 50s that won the FA Cup, that that was the best side, the, the 51 side, the Blackpool. Um, they always say, don't meet your hero because you're going to be disappointed. Nobody's going to be able to live up to that starry-eyed thing you've got in your head of Mr. Wonderful. Uh, in fact, this guy lived up to it and more. I got to know him awfully well after the end of his playing days when he then became a journalist and sat in the press box with us. 
I got to know him very closely. As I've said, the most modest man you could ever wish to meet. And he was genuinely flummoxed as to why he was so famous and why people... He was actually a tad uncomfortable with, with the, the fame and the recognition that he got. But he was um, a wonderful, wonderful man. And I went on to write four or five books with him and worked with him for an awful lot of years. And obviously he came from a well-known footballing family, Charles. Very much so. Um, yeah, look, looking at them, obviously Bobby Charlton and Jack Milgo, mm. I mean, where does he rank within that that list of players of that family? The interesting thing, there was loads of brothers that went off, loads of Milburns apart from Jackie that went off and played at places like Chesterfield and uh, had decent careers, but nothing ever as good as Jack. Um, you've got to put up, you've got to put Jackie up there with with Bobby Charlton. I think you would you would put him ahead of Jack Charlton. Um, but you've got a and Bobby, a wonderful, wonderful footballer. Um, but they used to support Jackie on the terraces in St James's Park. The two children, but they used to come down from Ashton in the in the bus, go over to St James's Park, watch watch their uncle play for Newcastle United, then go straight across the road to uh, New St James's Hall on the Saturday night, where there was wrestling on every Saturday night, and watch and watch the wrestling and that was their Saturday wonderful day and he ranked very high with them the interesting thing was that because of the books we did together I was approached out of the blue from London from the office of This Is Your Life to, and the Charns got heavily involved in this and said the books put Jackie Melbourne back in the public eye we would love to do Jackie Melbourne we never have done him would you act as the intermediary, i.e. you've got to get the permission of his, of his wife, Jackie's not going to know anything about it, or the plug is pulled, it's got to be a genuine surprise, but will his wife play ball because if she won't, there's not a story. Um, and I said, well, the first problem we've got is he'll never get Jackie Melbourne to go down to London on any pretense like shopping or something like that with his missus, so he'll make a programme, he won't go near the place, so you've got a problem immediately. They said, we never done it before, but we'll actually come up to Newcastle and, and set up a spoof so that we'll get Milburn. That's how much we think of him. I approached Lorna and I knew Jackie would be missing out of the house. She was reluctant because she felt he wouldn't like it. Dadulation, the public eye. Um, but I persuaded her, I, think, I thought it would be a good idea. And we went ahead and it took about three months to set up. Um, all the cleansing meetings and talk. There's only one person refused to go on the programme, and that was Len Chapman, that was a very big maid of Jackie's, but he'd always said, if somebody comes for this is your life for me, when they walk out the shadows with a red book and say, Len Shadowland, this is your life, I'll say, no, it isn't, turn on me, he'll leave. I don't want to know. So he wouldn't take part in the show itself as a guest saying nice things about Jack. Um, but it was all arranged to be in Newcastle at Time T's television. The idea was that they were going to do, that Time T's were going to do a programme on our book, the book I'd written with Jack. So I would go to the studio with Jack, they would interview Jack about the book, etc. They even produced spoof tickets which said exactly that, that and sold them to the public who thought they were going along for exactly that. On the day, my job was to look after Jackie while all the family went down to the studios, did some rehearsals, etc. So I had to keep him for the day and not let him out of the sight. 
I arranged, Arthur Cox was manager in Newcastle at the time, I arranged to go up, I put Arthur in the picture, I arranged to go up and have a chat with him, I said, chat with Jackie and I about the book, etc, etc. So we spent an hour and a half in the office, the big problem come at lunchtime, because he wanted to go home for his lunch and I hadn't let him out inside. So I said, oh dear. It's awful, Jack. The missus is away. I've got nothing to do. I don't know what to fill in my time. And I virtually begged him to invite us for lunch. And in the end, he did. And I went up to his house for lunch. And, and he burned. He did some sausages. And he, he burned them completely. The place was almost on fire. And I, I stayed with him all day. We went to the um, to the studios, into makeup. We're setting in makeup and the toughness up. And then as he walks out and walks through the crowd, out of the side comes Aim Nandos with a big red book. This is your life. Um, he said to me afterwards, he said, Gibbo, if I'd known that was on, I would never have done it in a month of Sundays, but I'm off pleased that I did now because it was so good. The Charlton's appeared on it. They even flew in Bert Troutman, the Manchester City goalkeeper, who was beaten by Milburn's header in the 55 Cup final after 45 seconds, the record, the quickest goal at Wembley at that time. They even flew him in from Pakistan, where he is coaching, um, to be a surprise guest. Um, and come on, in that they flew his auntie in from America. It was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful occasion. And it just showed how much Jackie Milburn meant to the public. But he was a very modest man as well because once mm. he retired it took what about 10 years to have a testimonial and he, was, he was adamant that no one would show up. Oh I mean he, he, there was a big um, push to get him a testimonial because you've got to remember of course in those days I, knew, I mean players didn't get fortunes so the only way a player got anything to lead him into the rest of his life was to be given the testimonial if he'd stayed long enough, made a few thousand quid. It wasn't going to mean he couldn't, he didn't have to work again, but it was going to give him a little hand. And Milburn had never got signing on fees or anything by moving because he never moved till he went to Lingfield at the end of his career. Um, and ten years after he finished, he, he, he got a testimonial and he was absolutely terrified. He was absolutely terrified. He said, it's ten years since I've played, people have forgotten me, nobody will come course completely and totally untrue and he put out in a, a, a team of all stars and Len Shack playing it and Len Shack who was the clown prince of soccer he was the guy before Gaza that did the Gaza tricks long before Paul was born um, and Shacks, he was a very proud man he was a, I mean he was my roommate on the on the first cup trips Shaq uh, when we were going to the first cup Shaq went into private training um, because he wanted to look good in the match and he went to the private train to get fit and he did a trick in the game when he received the ball he flicked it with the outside of his foot and dropped onto one knee and the ball spun out into a circle he dropped onto one knee cocked his finger and did the same come here with his finger and the ball comes straight back to his foot uh, the most amazing thing to see we, we brought across for rank pushkas uh, the real madrid hungry etc etc to play in the game as well. The fans loved it. We went to a nightclub in the town after the game. I sat next to Puskas, I had no idea what I was talking about. He couldn't speak a word of English. We couldn't speak a word of his language, uh, but it was a magical time. And, and Middleburn absolutely was staggered. Um, the people turned up. And the one, Middleburn was gifted as a footballer. 
the one thing he didn't have was the confidence or the nasty streak in him that would make him a manager. He followed Sir Alf Ramsey at Ipswich as manager and was an absolute disaster blessing because he was just too nice a man. And it got to him. And at the end of that, he said, never, never, never again. I've got to make too many harsh decisions. I've got to kick players out who now won't have a career. I can't do it. And that's why I came back to North East and become a journalist. And thank goodness for that, because I've got a very dear friend. I became a very dear friend of his family and I've remained so to this day. Now, when he first started out, he was on trial, and it was I think Stan Seymour that that, that saw yeah, him, and yeah. Stan Seymour wanted him. And I suppose Stan Seymour himself was a very good like winger forward. He scored a lot of goals. So watching Jack Milburn in trial, he must have seen something special. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, Seymour was the outside left the last time Newcastle won the Championship of England, the old First Division title in 1927, and he was the feed for Huey Gallagher who scored all the goals and was the skipper. So, I mean, there's no question that Seymour knew what everything was about. He was a ruthless man, um, but he was a good judge of uh, football flesh. I mean, the story goes, and it isn't the story, it's absolutely true, that Jackie Milburn saw in the Evening Chronicle an advert. This is what Newcastle did to advertise in the Evening Chronicle for local people to go and have trials at St James's Park. They put an advert in the Chronicle. He saw the advert in the Chronicle, applied to the ground to have a trial, was told to come in on the Saturday. They used to have a lot of public pre-season games, which was the first team against the reserves and all this sort of thing. He arrived at St James's Park with his boots and a brown paper parcel, having got the bus from Washington to Newcastle. He was far too early because he was... Far too excited. He sat on the steps outside St James's Park and had two pork pies waiting for the, the ground to open and him to go in. He played against the first team. At half time, he hadn't done anything particular. And one of the coaches said to me, Jacqueline, if you want to come here, you're going to have to do something in the next 45 minutes because you've only got 45 minutes. And then that's the end of your career here. What he did was score six goals in that 45 minutes. He scored six goals on trial. And immediately people like Seymour, who was watching, recognised, had him and his dad in the next day um, and talked to them. And Jackie told me the story, talked to them about um, Jackie coming and signing for Newcastle. And he had two, he had five one-pound notes, which they had in those days, which he he put between his fingers into a fan so and, and was just twirling them behind his back so his dad and Jackie could see that and were mesmerised by the money that was going to be the signing on fee to join Newcastle. He signed, he joined Newcastle and, believe it or not, was an outside right. Um, considering he's a number nine legend, he was an outside right and he was an outside right for an awful long time and didn't want to play centre-forward. Again, I think it was Seymour that persuaded him that he ought to be centre-forward. Uh, and he didn't want to go there. He said, I'm fine where I am, I'm an outside right. Switched to centre-forward. A legend was born. The best goal scorer the club ever had until Alan Shearer come along was born. And England international was born. So, um, yeah, Seymour knew what he was doing. And it was the same man, Seymour, who in 1955, when given the Newcastle United Cup final side by Dougal Livingstone, the manager, and the side didn't include Milburn, took one look at it 
and said we're not putting that side out, ripped it up in front of the manager and threw it in the waste paper basket and immediately picked his own side with Jackie Milburn at number 10, not at number 9, at number 10 alongside Vic Cable in a completely rearranged side and 45 seconds from the kickoff, Seymour was proved right, Milburn was proved right and Newcastle were 1-0 up with, of all things, a headed goal which was a the only, probably, the only weakness Jack had on a football field was he was not great in the end. He says, as I've seen a clip where he says that he never really lived it down scoring that header because everyone always said you can't, you can't head the ball. Yeah, I mean, he was well known as not being a header. He always insisted, of course, that the reason why he, he couldn't head the ball well is he had fibrosis, he had a neck problem, an injury in his neck and made it very difficult for him to twist and get power behind the ball. He is always exist, always insisted that's why he didn't head a lot of goals. The amazing thing is, on the goal, 45 seconds, uh, Roy Paul, who was captain of Man City, who was an excellent player, the winner corner straight away on the right, Len White goes over to take it, Paul's standing next to Milburn, and he suddenly says, bloody hell, Vic Cable, because Vic Cable was the great header of the ball at Newcastle, and he realised he was supposed to be marking him, suddenly looked round the penalty area where's Cable shot off to stand on Cable which left Milburn standing alone White placed the ball straight at Milburn boom back of the net Newcastle 1-0 up and from then on the course did it to win 3-1 and it was three cups in five years and we haven't won a domestic trophy since then uh, His best FA Cup final was the one against Blackpool he scored a double would without you say? a shadow of doubt I think it was it was Jack's best and it was Newcastle United's best of the three uh, the goals were phenomenal, they were totally two different types of goals, completely. Uh, one was about his pace and his quickness and his alertness running from the halfway line, the other was about his thunderbolt shot, where he just shouted for a back heel from Ernie Taylor, who instinctively back it and he whacked it right in the top corner against a very, very good, powerful Blackpool side. With the whole of the country, supporters of Blackpool so that Stanley Matthews could get his winner's medal and we were just a different class that day. I, the only telly we had in our family was my auntie Grace who had a postage stamp black and white telly in those days and we all piled up the house to watch the final. All the chairs were arranged in rows and I sat in the front watched the final on this little black and white telly rapturous, absolutely carried away, did the same the next year, did the same two years later and I thought what a wonderful life this is being a Geordie, we are going to win something every three or four years and I then came back to the Chronicle to, in 1966 to report on Newcastle first job, cover England, they won something, I thought I'm going to spend all my time watching Newcastle win something and England win something, neither have won a solitary single thing since. So it's um, your fault then? Yeah, without a shadow of <laughs> doubt. I refuse to die until Newcastle do win something, so my 100th birthday should be very entertaining, I think. Um, but yeah, um, in Jackie Milburn, we love our number nines, don't we? I mean, Jackie Milburn was the start of the modern one. We then had Super Mac, and then we had Alan Shearer. Now, that's three of the greatest that you're ever going to get. And Milburn always said that Huey Gallagher, who had retired, who had been the great centre-forward, used to wait for Jackie 
and give them hints on match days on what to do and what not to do. We used to wait outside of the, the players' entrance at St James's Park for Jack and have a word with him before. And Jack did exactly the same with Supermac when Jack had retired and Supermac was Newcastle centre forward. Um, because there were that sort of people, they, they were geniuses themselves, but they wanted other people to flourish yeah, as well. Because we, I think we discussed this a couple of weeks ago where we said Supermac had that maybe arrogance and confidence about himself, Milburn not so much, but how, the, how did Supermac take that advice off, off Milburn? I mean, obviously they had the respect there, but... Yeah, I, I mean, yes, he did have the respect there, and he, you've got to remember, for all he had this arrogance and swagger about him, when he came here, he was 21 and never played in the old first division. He'd only played in the second tier of English football. He was 21, about to play in, in the big league, and he arrived in the Rolls Royce with a with a chauffeur in the front with a chauffeur's cap on. Now, how, how uh, arrogant in the nicest possible. He drank champagne and, and smoked six foot cigarettes, uh, cigars. Um, buying it all, the Superman. He played the part and loved playing the part. But away from that, he knew what the game was all about, and he and he respected Milburn. He knew what Milburn meant here, and he, he thought, if ever I'm going to become a legend at Newcastle United then I've got to listen to somebody that was a legend in my position, Jackie Milburn, because I'm going to need all the help I can get. And there was great similarities, you know, because Milburn was very quick and Supermac was very quick. Shearer was a different leader. Shearer wasn't quick, as you know. He didn't have great pace. He had so many other attributes, which was wonderful. But in a way, Supermac was a replica of Milburn and um, used to say... That's why I would listen to him. And Milburn used to say that often Supermac got criticised, particularly by Keith Birkinshaw, who was the first team coach at one time in Newcastle, the famous manager of Spurs. And he was criticised for not tracking back, as is the famous way people want now, oh, your centre forward, got to track back with the centre half. To, um, Supermac wouldn't have that. He used to just say, hey, listen, mate. I'll score the goals, your job's to keep them out, my job's to score them, so you keep them out and I'll put them in at the other end. Um, but he always said, he talked to Jackie and Jackie said to him, you've got to be prepared to score an 89th minute winner. You've got to have enough in the tank to be able to out-sprint the two centre-halves and go on and blaze it into the top corner. You can't be a spent force. He said, and I always remembered that and I always was in a position where I hadn't run about aimlessly for no con or to take Frank Clark or Bob Munker or, or whoever out at the back I had enough and they knew if they got the ball and got it up to me I would still have enough in the tank to go on and finish and win the game and he said Jackie Milburn always said to me never forget that always be prepared and be capable of winning the game in the 89th minute the same as you could in the first and what, what how proud was, was Jackie of winning those FA Cups you know as a, as a jury oh, I mean, I mean uh, yeah it, it, it meant everything to him because it was his own it was his own folk that he had won it for he was uh, he was basically a minor out of Ashington and um, he, he was so proud he didn't realise how unique it was going to be and he didn't realise Newcastle won when he walked away in 55 he didn't realise that he that all this time now in 2017 2018 would be sitting and still not have a domestic cup that would thought would never ever have crossed his mind but 
I mean, Jackie actually temporarily lost the FA Cup after winning it on behalf of Newcastle because he took he took it up to Ashton, stuck it in his back garden, um, while he had a party with neighbours and everything in his house. The cup was standing in the back garden. And at one stage, Betty, his little daughter, went out the back, picked the cup up and disappeared down the back lane with it. And it was only five minutes later when they said, Where, where's the cup? And there was blind panic, the cup had gone missing. And Betty was found with it down at the bottom of the lane, making mud pies in the cup at the bottom of the lane. Uh, that was the sort of innocence of those days. Can you imagine superstar footballers of today uh, living, getting a bus in from Washington to Newcastle and living in a little house with a cup in the back garden and their daughter making yeah. mud pies in it. <laughs> and we say that, you know, he gave advice to Supermark. Did he ever, how did he feel about having his name held up in light, so to speak? He was Newcastle United's record goal scorer. Yeah. You know, he was loved, he was adored on Tyneside, even many, many decades, even now after, um, you know, he retired. Um, yeah. How did he feel about that attention? Did it, did he, do you think he ever realised? No, he, he was very, very proud of what he had achieved, but at the same time, very uncomfortable when people came and told him what a great man and a great player he was. He was very courteous, he was very charming with them, but he found it uncomfortable to be faced with his own high esteem, if you like. Uh, he never quite managed to, to, to live that life in the way that a lot of, you, you look at Ronaldo or Cristiano Ronaldo or any of the other players, they, they have a, a, a thing about them, I'm good and don't I know it as well as you. Um, he found that very, very difficult and very hard to accept. Um, but I mean, I remember when, when Jackie died, bless him, I... I knew he had lung cancer, he was always a big smoker, I knew he had lung cancer, I knew he was struggling. I went away on holiday and um, out in the heat and I suddenly saw this paper. I was in a restaurant having breakfast and I saw a guy reading an English paper and up the top it said, Newcastle legend dies as a headline and I knew exactly who that would be and I was absolutely destroyed by the fact that he died and by the fact I wasn't in Newcastle and therefore I was still on holiday when Jackie had his funeral and to miss it, I mean, brought tears to my eyes. Lorna, his wife, who a lovely lady, realised how distraught I would be, even at the lowest ebb in her life and there was a memorial service held in Ashington in his honour because of course it was down here where the funeral took place and she asked me to speak at that memorial service because I was back home and I spoke in um, a pulpit in Ashington. I've done a lot of things publicly on stage and in nightclubs, restaurants, um, social clubs, but speaking without a microphone in absolute silence with passion about somebody who really cared was one of the toughest gigs I think I've ever done. And I always remember I came quite shaking out of the pulpit down back into the pews and Sissy Charlton, Bobby and Jackie's mum, just got a hold of my hand, squeezed it and said, Jack would have loved that. And um, that was enough for me. I mean, the, the TV images of his funeral, of the fans oh. lining up the street. I mean, I imagine, and you'll probably tell me that, Jackie would have been a little bit maybe embarrassed at the Oh, Jack, Jackie would have been absolutely shocked and um, amazed and red-faced um, 
because it's very glib to say he is a modest hero, but I mean, he's the most modest hero I'd, I'd ever known and was quite staggered. Although he knew what football meant to the area, he, he, he never thought that he'd done enough, that he just was doing a job and, and was pretty good at his job, but that's about as far as it went. Um, he would have been shocked to the core, um, but he was the ultimate hero, isn't he? Because he's the local hero. He's the local guy that makes good. Alan Shearer is the other guy that come along and emulated him from that point of view. You know, we all love our, our number nine. Supermac is a great, great friend of mine, etc., etc. But he's a cockney that come up here and did it and we're grateful for an eternity for him. But to have one of your own do it, which is Jackie Milburn, to have one of your own do it, which is Alan Shearer, is even special. more special. And I mean, what would you have made of having a statue outside of the uh, the stand being named after him? It would have just been another thing where you would have just been gobsmacked. Um, aye, the, there's no question. I mean, one of the great moments for me, because the Chronicle were heavily involved, was that I did the mic work at the opening of the unveiling of the Jackie Mulligan statue, which was originally in Northumberland Street, has been moved since. And I did that, and I was there with uh, Charlie Crow, who was one of... Uh, Newcastle's Cup winners and with uh, Mrs Milburn and the crowds that were there just for the unveiling of the statue. I mean, it, it, it's quite amazing. I think he lived in a unique time for football, the 50s, the, in as much as crowds throughout the country were absolutely ginormous. Um, we needed stars. All the stars were either locals or English. We hadn't got the influx of the all the wonderful players from abroad then, although Newcastle did have the Robledo brothers who had been born in Chile, but they'd been brought up in Barnsley, which is slightly different. Um, but it, it was a an extra special time. And for me too, because I saw it through the eyes of a child, the child being me. And there's nothing more starry-eyed than, than watching when you're young. Watching when you're older, you appreciate. I appreciated Shearer, but I appreciated Milburn in a much different way because I was a kid in, with my adulation for Milburn. What did he make of the, the number nines, the strikers that came after he retired? You know, great names like Len White, Glenn Davies. I mean, some great stars, you know, Supermac, as we've just previously yep. mentioned. What did yep. he make of them? Yeah, yeah. Um, he was a great believer that Newcastle United were about the number nines, that however good a side they had, they had to have a great number nine because that's what the crowd wanted. They wanted good sides, but they wanted a number nine that was different to everybody else. His great hero was Albert Stubbins, who um, was the number nine just before him. Albert was, would have been sensational, but he, he, he lost most of his career to the Warriors. Uh, 39 to 45 was Albert at his best. Um, he was, funny enough, very, very quick as well. But he, every time Newcastle produced a great centre-forward after him, and he was a great supporter of Len White, who um, again played on the wing often while Milburn was around and then played centre-forward straight after Milburn. When Milburn was at Linfield, he used to come across on the plane to watch Newcastle play and watch Len White play centre-forward for Newcastle. Uh, there were, in the time when there was all church uh, with him and we had a great forward line that scored 80 goals but we had a horrible defence that let in over 100 and got relegated. Um, but he took great delight in watching 
the great players. And even though he wasn't a great goal scorer, he loved Wynne Davies as a great barnstorming centre forward that got so much in the air when he was following Newcastle United and his great mate Joe Harvey during the European First Cup winning days. And what did you make of the likes of Paul Gascoigne and Peter Beardsley, who you would have seen in the early 80s? I mean, two of the best ever players to pull on oh, the black and white shirt. Oh, uh, and, and I think what made him particularly proud, and I guess made us particularly proud, is that they were our own. Yeah. They were our own, and that was the extra, um, the extra thing from him. Uh, he adored talent, he, he adored natural ability, uh, which those people had, and therefore, of course, he adored Bobby Charlton, and there was some player. Might never have played for Newcastle United, but by Jove, some jolly player Bobby Charlton was, and um, you know, part of part of his family. Um, so there was a great pride. I think he found more pride in watching others, be it uh, Gascoigne or, or Beardsley or Len White or than he did himself because he was uncomfortable with what he was but he, he loved seeing what what other people were and he was a great supporter of them he was great man for you could the go-to man for advice he was always open to talk to any player that wanted to approach him without ever pushing down his neck mm. I'm Jackie Milburn by the way no chance uh, what do you think you would have made of, of Alan Shearer in if he'd seen him play, if he'd seen him break his record, I mean, he must, he would have just been so proud to see his record go to oh, another Geordie. Well, I mean, and, and as Alan said in the piece I did recently in the Chronicle, Alan said, you know, my dad's big hero was Jackie Milburn. And for me to beat Jackie Milburn's career, uh, career total of goals and be able to walk in the house, knowing my dad's going to be so proud of me because anybody that can take War Jackie's record. Um, and he invited Mrs. Milburn along to his testimonial that he had, the Shearer one, because the, the pride Shearer has got to this day in claiming the record of somebody as wonderful as, as Milburn, Milburn would have loved it the other way on. And the reason he would have loved it, he would never have said it because he's too much of a gentleman. But... Deep down inside, he would want a Geordie to take his record. Not just a Newcastle United centre forward, but a Geordie. Definitely. Um, and there's a story that in the 80s, Jackie met Brian Johnson and tried to persuade him to invest in the club. Is that correct? The yeah, ACDC yeah, guy. Um, yes, he did. Very much so. And um, I mean, I know Brian ever so well these days. He, Brian's ex-wife, is Mar- Carol, is married to uh, Superman. Um, but I knew him back, because Brian Johnson was a huge Newcastle United fan, and still is, but uh, he, he always was. And um, Newcastle needed investment. It was around the time of um, Westwood and um, the board, and they were going nowhere, and they needed some investment. And... Jack went and saw Brian Johnson and it was very, very close to happening. Um, and I think the only reason it really didn't happen was because uh, Brian Johnson was all over the shop um, and that became a problem for Elton John at Watford. Um, you know, to be a second-hand landlord, it doesn't quite work. You, you want to be on the job 90% of the time. 
and I think that was just the only reason why it uh, why it didn't happen. I mean, the interesting thing, I mean, Jack still had a huge influence on things that happened in Newcastle, and he had a huge influence on a couple of Newcastle managers coming in. Jack Charlton, of course, he was the go-between to bring Jack Charlton to Newcastle, um, keeping it in the family. He also bought one McGarry, and I'll never forgive him for that. Jack's got to get something wrong, and that's the one he got wrong. He bought Bill McGarry here to manage Newcastle because I had been player power, and he wanted some Newcastle were wanting somebody to smash down that player power. Now Bill McGarry's brilliant at taking a sledgehammer and knocking the wall down. He's not so clever once he's got a load of rubble to build it back up again. And uh, for me, Bill was an absolute disaster. At Newcastle, and I, I know that that hurt Jackie. I mean, um, Bill said when Bill got the sack, he, he turned to me in a, in a packed room of, of journalists and he said, pointed at me, and he said, "You," he said, "you got me the sack," and I said, "Bill, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me," <laughs> because uh, that was worth taking on the on the chin. He was an old-fashioned manager, good player, an old-fashioned manager, but doer and not the sort of warm tub thumper that Newcastle United need. Obviously, Jackie went into journalism after mm. he finished. Uh, as good a journalist as a striker, would you say? No. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, without a shadow of doubt, uh, what he sold was his name. He worked for the News of the World. Uh, his name on a story meant the public believed the story because Jackie Milburn wouldn't make it up, would he? If Jackie Milburn says Newcastle want to sign somebody, they want to sign somebody. Uh, so it was his name. No, he, uh, you, you, he could never be as good at anything as he was as a footballer because he was the best there's possible to be as a footballer and you can't. He couldn't be as good a manager, he couldn't be as good a journalist. What he was, he had great contacts. I mean, all he and Shaq did to get all the, uh, the stories they could, is that they both went out for a round of golf once a week, because they worked for Sunday newspapers, both of them. They had a round of golf once a week with Joe Harvey, the old playing mate, who was manager of Newcastle. They set up all the stories in, in that round of golf, they had a lovely four hours round of golf, and come back and wrote the stories and that was it. And the subs would knock them into shape, etc. back at, back at headquarters. Um, but he was an honest journalist. Um, he did care what he said, um, much more than than Shaq, who was who was always a bit of a scally. You know, he famously wrote in his book, The Clown Prince of of Soccer. He wrote in his book, Chapter Seven, what directors know about football, and left the page blank. Um, that's the sort of journalist Shaq was. Great fun, you know. He'd say. Um, when Newcastle are going to be relegated, he wrote, Newcastle are going places, but who wants to go to Walsall? Um, etc. He was that sort of journalist. Um, Jack was the man that wanted to tell this, uh, the truth and would always find it uncomfortable as a journalist to write about the defeat and, and, and slag Newcastle because he couldn't bring himself to do that. That was a failing as a journalist. If they lost 5 0, it would be because the wind was blown in the wrong direction or something. It would have nothing to do with Newcastle. Uh, so, but he was a lovely, lovely man, and um, so much of the Newcastle history can be traced back there. Do you think he ever harnessed any ambitions to to manage Newcastle? Of course, Newcastle. Do you think his early adventures into management just scared him off and he was more than happy to? No, I, I mean, once or twice after he come back home, people 
tried to persuade him to either join the coaching staff, become manager, maybe go on to the board, and he was horrified. Yeah, in no way did he want that sort of responsibility because he knew when he was a player he was so good that there wasn't any nastiness, there wasn't any downs at all. But if you're a manager, if you're a coach, if you're on the board, there's downs. You've got to be harsh with people, you've got to be cruel, you've got to drop them, you've got to sack them, you've got to get them out of the club. Jackie Milburn really didn't know how to do that. The one time Jackie told me he ever took to drink, proper drink, in his life, was during the last six months at Ipswich Town when he would sit in the office with a bottle of gin at night after everybody had gone home and just drink the gin and be past himself as to what he could do to right what was going wrong. And that, what I think, was the lowest period of a wonderful career in football. And he was much better when he could get out of Ipswich, get out of management, come back to the people he loved, mix with them, and simply be war jacket. So he was very proud of these England caps, but many people would say he didn't get enough. I think that's absolutely right. Um, he was proud of his England cap. There was wonderful centre-forwards in, in his days, Tommy Lawton and everything. There was wonderful wonder. The competition was absolutely huge. Um, you didn't play many games, you know, I knew. You played, the, you played the, the, the home internationals, but in those days you didn't have a million friendlies, you, you didn't have any European competitions. Um, so he, he, he hardly uh, had it. There was very limited opportunities, um, and he didn't get anywhere near the number of England caps that he deserved, but he was in a period of princes amongst centre-forwards for England at that stage. And of course he was he was with Newcastle before Europe took off with the European First Cup, etc. But the wonderful thing is, you know, in the twilight of his career he went over to Linfield, Irish part-timers, is in his middle to late thirties, effectively finished, his paces very diminished, which was a great part of his game. But he played in the European Cup with Linfield, which is the Champions League of today. Um, and, and scored it, uh, which was which was lovely for him. And by the way, he's idolised over in Belfast um, to this very day by Linfield supporters. Not quite as much as he's idolised here, but they love him over there as well. And um, there's not much um, good about old age. But what's been good about old age to me is mm -hmm. that it meant I actually saw Jackie Milburn play live. Uh, and that is special in my life. Um, I was privileged to see a guy I think is the produced the birth of the modern Newcastle United. He was handed the, the freedom of the city. Um, yep. and another proud moment for him, I think again, him being the modest self, he would have been quite uh, taken back by then. What was his reaction when he got the news and he was handed? Well, he, he was always genuinely surprised that people considered that he'd done enough for that sort of recognition. The most amazing thing about that one, uh, I remember, is that Basil, Cardinal Basil Hume got it at the same time. Uh, the Freedom of the City. Yeah, yeah there were three or four get them in one batch. And he, in his speech, asked about becoming a Freeman. 
said the greatest thing, this is one of the finest things that ever happened to me because I stood alongside my hero, Jackie Milburn, and uh, received this award. And he just waxed a little about Jackie Milburn. And, you know, to the Cardinal, the number one man in, in London, etc., etc., um, to say it's an absolute privilege to share a stage with Jackie Milburn shows the standard that Jackie Milburn had. And... Um, he was he was thrilled to bits privately about all the recognition he got. Uh, though publicly, he would love to have got this, but not to have to receive it in public. If he could send it in the post to his house, he would have been chuffed to bits to be recognised. But to have to stand up there and say thanks, and it's not that he wasn't grateful; he couldn't have been more grateful. It was he was bewildered, and it never left him that that. And I often found it hard to understand, because if I'd been as great a footballer as Jackie Milburn, I would have wallowed in, I would have loved that. I would have been going to everybody and saying, by the way, you know I'm Jackie Milburn, don't you? Uh, but but not, not for him. So 30 years later, you still couldn't believe the, the reception you get just walking down the street bumming into people? Yeah. Um, oh, yes, absolutely. And he was a man of the people that way. He never had the trimmings of fame. Because the, in his day, there wasn't the superstars didn't get the super money, so he never had the huge car. I think he was the first person at Newcastle United to have a car, but I mean it was a, it was about the size of an orange box. Um, you know, it was much different in those days. But you mixed with the people all the time. Today's superstars can lead a rather isolated life, living in the huge house in 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 Dallas Hall or wherever they wish to be, and. Um, rather detached from the crowd. He was one of the crowd because he didn't have any more money because it was the day of um, limited wages. He didn't have any more money than the guy who was at the coalface in Ashington. Um, had a lot more fame, a lot more adulation, but not a lot more money. And so he went in the same pork shop, he went into, he got on the bus to come into Newcastle, he did exactly the same thing, and he lived as one of the people, and that's how he saw himself, but that cemented his reputation, because he was one of us. Uh, what did he made of today's game, modern day game, the, all the money, all the players, you know? He'd be, be absolutely gobsmacked at the cash, um, I'm talking about the players make, because he, in his day, the players were genuinely slaves. They made two and tuppence jag and did as they were told and um, uh, their contracts tied them down. They were threat like slaves. Um, today, the power's all with the players, where in his days it was all with the club. He'd be absolutely staggered by the wages. He'd think the wages were obscene. He'd be staggered by the amount of foreign players in the in the game today. Not that I mean um, they haven't lightened up the game and been a blessing for this country. He just would never have foreseen that day coming when the place most teams would have forty percent of the team, or perhaps a lot more, as foreign players, not British players, but foreign players. Unheard of in his days, absolutely unheard of. I mean, when Benny Amantoff came to Newcastle in 69 for the first cup, and Jack, I mean, that was a sensation in Newcastle. He, was a guy, he only come because he come from Scotland, but he was at, but he, he, he was a guy, you know, from abroad, just kind of having come to play for Newcastle. Um, that would have staggered him. He would, 
he would have been very envious of the sort of grounds the footballers play on today. I'm talking about the pitches rather than the stadiums. Yeah. He played in six foot clots with, with, with big hobnail boots and a leather ball which in the rain felt like a dead weight. Um, and I had to perform under those circumstances. Now you wear carpet slippers, you've got the most beautiful lawn that's ever possible with underground heating. Um, in his days, the pitch was often, if it wasn't full of mud, it, it, it was you were playing on four inches of snow, and the rest of it was piled around the touch lines, um, etc. And that's the way football was in his days, the wonderful conditions of today. What a player he would have been in these conditions, by the way, because what a player he was in those conditions. Do you think he would have been able to transition, you know, if he, if he with style today? Would have yes, worked? yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I'm, I'm a great believer that every great player, from whatever era they are a great player in, would adapt to any era they were given because that is how good they are. Jackie Milburn would be quite as at home today. Alan Shearer would be quite as home in 40 years' time with whatever stage football's at. Then, quality players, you can't tell me that Gascoigne and Beardsley and Bobby Charlton and that wouldn't be able to uh, to play at any time. During and what would happen is the, the better training that you would get would make it that much fitter and they'd be able to say, well, maybe they couldn't adapt at the pace the game's played at today. Of course they could because they'd have today's training, which would get them up to that level that they weren't at in their days. Um, Jackie Milburn, especially because pace was his game and, and pace is very much part of modern day football, Jackie Milburn would be a wild today. And what would you have made of Mike Ashley, Rafa Benitez and the strikers that Newcastle have got there? He would be absolutely embarrassed by the strikers Newcastle have got today. There's absolutely no question about that. He wouldn't be so staggered about Mike Ashley because in his day, the whole of a Newcastle United board were dictators. And um, if the board said jump, it was just how high. Um, so Ashley would be par for the course for the sort of board that he knew at the time, he'd be disillusioned and he would question how much the owner might have a genuine love for his club and that would hurt him because of the love he retained for his own club. Um, Benitez, he would like Benitez as a manager because Benitez has a passion, Benitez is clever, Benitez works fans well and has a great affiliation with fans as did Milburn. So that would work. Um, the biggest shock Jackie Milburn would have if he was uh, alive today and, and going up to watch Newcastle at the weekend would be looking at the number nine shirt he used to have that, that was then worn by Wynn Davies and Supermac and Alan Shearer and thinking, what on earth is, is going on here today? Surely we can get somebody that matters because he believes that any Newcastle side four fans should be built around a great number now and you know what as a fan myself I think he wasn't too wrong so if there's one story Gibble that you could tell about Milburn what would it what would it be well funny enough it wouldn't be a, a funny story I've had a lot of stories because he you know, like we've had with Len Shack when I, when I was saying, you know, the, the blank page in the book and all that sort of stuff. 
With Milburn, it's a story that just sums up the sort of guy that he was. Um, if you did something for him, he was so thrilled, he, he didn't think, well, it, it's natural that I'm who I am. People will want to do wonderful things for me because I'm the, the greatest goal scorer in the history of Newcastle United, as he was at the time. Um, he was grateful. And after he had this, this uh, testimonial match, which staggered him and 10 years later and that. And a lot of the campaign was driven by a journalist called Doug Weatherill, who was a good friend of mine and of Jackie's, and, and he did an awful lot. And I got behind it as the local paper as well, of course. And um, this day I heard, the, sometime in the evening, I heard the, the door go as something had come through the letterbox. And I thought, oh, it's not the post at this time. And I just went to have a look, and there on the map was a little parcel. And I opened it up and it was just a, a leather-bound wallet and in it was a note from Jack saying, thank you so much for all you've done for me. You're so kind, signed by Jack. I've still got that wallet to today. I've still got that note from Jackie for today. He's thanking me for what I'd done for him. When I and 50,000 other Jodies should be grateful every day for what he did for us. But the first, the one thing he could think of was thanking somebody for being so kind to him. He would never take it for granted that, well, you would be because of who I am. And I, I think that he didn't even want to knock on the door and give it to me because he would have the embarrassment of having to say something when he handed it over and seeing my face. He slipped it through the letterbox and it was just lying and I've kept, I've never used it, I've kept it in exactly the case, the little box it was in with Jack's note and I haven't bothered showing it to anybody, it's, it's got nothing to do with anybody but me. Um, and that is the sort of caring man that Jackie Milburn was and that's a legacy he's left behind and that's why he's still loved to this very day. Just to wrap it up, as a as a man, as a friend, Gibbo, how would you how would you sum Jackie Milburn up? I would sum him up as one of the dearest friends. It's been my privilege to have a man of great loyalty, great humility. He was humility. He would never talk behind people's backs. He would be grateful for what he did for you. He came into my life when I was an impressionable kid, became a friend became a workmate and still lives on today because people live on in your heart and he does exactly that. And I've always championed great footballers and called them my friends and he has been one of that and will remain one of that. Nobody will ever change that. And as I say, the great consolation for me being my age is that I actually saw and was privileged to see Jackie Milburn at his best and I believe that he cemented my great passion and love for Newcastle United that's remained ever since. Well, there you have it, thank you very much for joining us. If you head to chroniclelive.co.uk to uh, follow all the latest Newcastle United news. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to like, subscribe and share the podcast, whether that be through iTunes, Audioboom, Spotify or whichever platform you may be listening through. 
And if you want to get involved with the podcast, you can do so via our social media channels. We're over on Twitter at Chronicle NUFC and on Facebook at the same handle, Chronicle NUFC. We want your questions, your topics, your feedbacks. So why don't you drop us a line and get in touch?